The word civility, the core of it, the root of it, is the same root as the word civilization. One of the most critical parts of our ability to engage in a civic society and to have a civilization is to be civil to one another and to act in a way where we're respectful to one another. So I think the idea of civics to me means a, a certain basic level of respect for fellow humans, a feeling of responsibility to a greater body. And that doesn't mean that each of us has to get up every day and think about how we can make the government better, but it does mean that all of us need to have this idea that we have a responsibility to the greater good. And that means taking care of the institutions that keep us a, a thriving democracy. I just fundamentally believe that our right to free speech is at the core of all of our other rights as citizens of the United States. It's not just giving us the right to say negative things about the government, it's giving us the right to persuade our fellow citizens that the government ought to be changed. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Life School, a podcast for curious, lifelong learners looking to improve their quality of living and make a positive difference in the world. This is your host, Michelle Tandler. Today, we're going to have a conversation with Katie Biber, a former colleague of mine from Thumbtack and an absolutely inspiring individual. She is currently the chief legal officer at Brex, a thriving tech company here in San Francisco. She's led legal teams at some of the most interesting companies in Silicon Valley, including Anchorage, Thumbtack, and Airbnb. She also notably served as general counsel for Mitt Romney's campaign for president. Today, she's going to speak with us about civics, civic duty, and the importance of free speech. We had an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I learned a ton. I hope that you enjoy this talk. Let's get started. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. I am thrilled to be interviewing you for Life School. As you know, I've really admired you and your career for a very long time, so this is really neat to be able to talk about something that I know matters to a lot. Let's just dive in. You sent me a bunch of information about con law for kids. I am learning a ton. I never was taught constitutional law in my entire life, so this is just completely eye-opening. I learned what, for example, libel and slander is today. I never knew that there was a difference. Um, but maybe to kick us off, can you... You're very passionate about free speech. In fact, I think it's even mentioned in your Twitter bio. You have something written that says, whoever would overthrow the liberty of a nation must begin by subduing the freeness of speech. Can you explain what that means and why you think free speech is so important? Sure. Um, thank you, Michelle. So I, I just fundamentally believe that our right to free speech is at the core of all of our other rights as citizens of the United States. And what that quote on my Twitter profile means, and it was Benjamin Franklin, by the way, uh, is that if a government wants to subdue its people, wants to create a dictatorship, wants to abolish democracy, the first and most important thing that they have to do is get rid of citizens' ability to persuade one another, campaign against the government, um, petition the government, and otherwise organize citizens. Places where the First Amendment is not important use that stranglehold on speech to keep people in power for eternity. Because if you can't ever say anything negative and you can't organize your fellow citizens, nothing will ever change. If you look at countries like China, for example, free speech simply doesn't exist. You can be jailed for saying something even moderately negative about a political leader. And there's a reason why dictatorships do that. Because that one little seed, that one little spark can cause an entire movement and could cause the overthrow of a leader that would like to stay in control for eternity. So giving citizens the ability to organize and oust leaders that are not doing their job is critically important. And you simply can't do that without the First Amendment right to speak your mind. How, what are ways in which people do limit free speech? Like how is free speech limited? 
What are ways that this amendment is broke is, or this right is infringed upon? Yeah, it's actually funny. You know, a lot of election lawyers and First Amendment scholars joke that Congress shall make no law, is what the First Amendment says, except for that giant pile of laws over there, which would otherwise seem to infringe upon your right to speak. And, you know, I think one area that I've studied a lot um, is campaign finance. There are a lot of rules about what candidates can say or not say before they trigger certain types of filings. There are lots of rules that determine when an outside group can advocate for or against a particular candidate without having to interact with the government by filing something with the Federal Election Commission. Um, You know, on the other side of the spectrum, there are rules about what commercial products can say about themselves. We make tobacco companies put warnings on the side of cigarettes. We tell um, candy companies that they have to put the number of calories and grams of fat on the side of their box. All of those things implicate the First Amendment, but we've just decided that things like commercial speech... Uh, are not as important to us as core political speech. And we're okay with the types of restrictions that we impose upon commercial endeavors. So there's a whole range of First Amendment restrictions that we tolerate, right? I mean, I think the most uh, famous is this idea that I think even a layperson could tell you, you know, you, you're not allowed to run into a movie theater and yell fire because then everyone will stand up and trample one another as they go out the door, right? Um, but harder cases involve things like, you know, the case that you saw on my website that involved a couple of middle schoolers who wore Vietnam protest armbands to school. And part of the question was, do kids leave their First Amendment right at the door? And the answer in that case was, well, no, not really. They do not, in fact, leave their First Amendment rights at the door. And the, the cases have gone the other way when it comes to things like profanity in schools. Like, you know, can't have a kid walking into school with a shirt that says F you. It's OK for a school to outlaw something like that. But um, I think there, there are, um, over, over the years, we've built up a tolerance to certain types of laws and restrictions that do technically implicate for free speech and would otherwise infringe on the First Amendment if we hadn't developed this jurisprudence and body of law, which says, well, you know, in this case, you can, you can infringe upon it. And in this case, you can also infringe upon it. But um, yeah, I, I think that uh, it, it is the most fundamental foundational right that we have as Americans. Got it. So how many countries in the world do you think take this as seriously as the United States? Like, do you think we're one of the best or? I mean, um, I I think there's there's probably some human rights interest groups who would point out plenty of shortcomings of the United States in this regard. But I can't think of a country that has robust free speech rights like the United States does. I mean, even take the UK, which is a pretty close cousin in most other legal areas. They famously have much less protection for free speech in the case of things like defamation. Um, They have a, a recognized right to privacy that we simply don't have as part of our legal system here. So if somebody doesn't like the the coverage of them in newspapers, one of the best places to sue those newspapers is in the UK, not in the United States, because the bar for the newspaper's First Amendment right here is so high, and it, it, that is just not a recognized right in the same way that it is here. Got it. So, okay, can we talk a little bit about where limitations on free speech matter or where you think there should be limitations. I looked at the website that you created. You created, a, I think it's called Con Law for Kids, right? It's a mm-hmm. website you created for your children's classmates. Actually, maybe can you quickly say what that was? And then can we talk about some of the cases that are in there? Sure. So during the, the height of the pandemic, when the kids were in full-on Zoom school, I decided to seize the moment and create a Con Law for Kids class that walked through some of the foundational 
text, uh, like the Constitution itself and the Declaration of Independence, and really tried to explain to the kids what it means to have fundamental rights as an American, and then proceeded to talk through important topics like Japanese internment. You know, the kids who were in this class all live in San Francisco. And you can literally look at a map of San Francisco from the roundup materials that the government distributed saying, you know, if you live west of 19th Avenue, then you go here. And if you live east, you go there. And it's quite quite jarring. We talked through all of that and what powers a president has in a time of war and what restrictions the Constitution puts on that. We spent a lot of time talking about the importance of separation of powers and why such a critical part of the Constitution is making sure that power is parsed out uh, among different branches of government and they all have checks on one another and why that's different and really important to the way American rights can be preserved. But one of the most foundational things that I really tried to teach the kids was this very American idea of rights emanating from just being human. You know, if you read the Declaration of Independence, it says that our rights are endowed by our creator. And you don't actually need to believe in a creator to understand the concept of this. What you have to understand is that the government doesn't give you your rights. Your rights come from, you know, in the case of the Declaration of Independence, from God. But, you know, if you, if you don't believe in that, from just being a human being. And that's so different than the way other countries view rights. So now let's look at the Constitution, right? What does that mean in the context of the Constitution? It means that that document is there to protect us against the men and women who will populate our government. You know, the Federalist Papers said famously that if men were angels, no government would be necessary, right? And if the government was populated by angels, the Constitution wouldn't be necessary. But it's not. It's always going to be populated by people who want to gain more power for themselves, who want to do things that benefit themselves, and who can't necessarily be entrusted to make the right policies all the time. And so the idea of the Constitution is just such a critical protection against human nature. And that's the main idea that I wanted to impart to the kids. Wow. How did they react to that? And how, how old were these children? Like, did they understand it? What was what was the reaction like? They they absolutely understood it. I mean, I think uh, no one is more familiar with human nature than a middle schooler. <laughs> and I think that they can they can understand how when given the opportunity to exercise power over fellow citizens, human beings will seize that sometimes in the most unfortunate ways. And I've met a lot of truly good hearted people who have entered government for the right reasons. But you can never assume that everyone will have entered it for the right reasons. And even the very best people need to have protections against their own power because, um, you know, humans are humans. The, the kids really understood these ideas and they also reacted really indignantly when we started talking about things like restrictions on their speech as students or the idea of the fourth amendment and when a police officer can come and search your house and why. And I think they really absorb this idea that the constitution is there to protect them against the government. And, uh, and that's not something I think that most people who are not familiar with civics truly understand. How would you define civics? I've been thinking about this word a lot. I actually got a civics textbook. It's called building citizenship, civics and economics. I never was taught civics growing up. What does that word mean to you? Um, well, it's funny. I actually read a really great piece that is, you know, relevant to this conversation earlier today by Nancy French, who um, is long been part of the Republican Party and the 
Um, she's a committed Christian activist and writes a lot about right-leaning topics, as does her husband, David French, who is a prolific writer. So Nancy had talked about how she had been interacting recently on the phone with somebody who had been a troll on her Twitter account for a very long time, who would say scorching things about her, you know, call her terrible words. And she realized during the pandemic that this this woman was disabled and was having trouble getting food delivered to her home in New York. And, uh, you know, long story short, Nancy ended up facilitating getting some groceries delivered to this woman's house, despite the fact that this person had, you know, said nothing but the most horrible things about her on Twitter. And she started talking about the concept of civility and how the word civility, the core of it, the root of it is the same root as the word civilization. And one of the most critical parts of our ability to engage in a civic society and to have a civilization is to be civil to one another and to act in a way where we're respectful to one another. So I think the idea of civics to me means a couple of things. I think number one, a certain basic level of respect for fellow humans. And number two, a feeling of responsibility to a greater body. You know, that, that doesn't mean that each of us has to get up every day and think about how we can make the government better. If anything, I think, you know, people like me believe the government would be better if it were as small and constrained as possible. But it does mean that all of us need to have this idea that we have a responsibility to the greater good. And that means taking care of the institutions that keep us a, a thriving democracy. I love that description. That's really neat. Um, you should that's read a, the piece, that's an though, incredible story about. So did the woman keep trolling her? No, I think the the trolling stopped. But you <laughs> should go read the piece. I mean, they she had said some pretty terrible things about both Nancy and her husband, um, who are both very public people and who write a lot. Well, I can relate to being trolled. I get trolled on Twitter, and it's funny. <laughs> I've been thinking recently about. Twitter and some of the changes that have happened where, I mean, there's a big change that just happened this week or maybe last week um, where they're banning sharing images of private citizens. Yeah. I mean, that's just, (laughs) that rule is a little bit, uh, I mean, it's just a giant uh, discretionary loophole for Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a way for Twitter to put within its zone of total um, discretion, anything that it wants. Right. So, I mean, if you notice a, um, you know, an assault taking place on the street and you take video of it. Well, surely I think most people would say that falls within whatever public good exception there is to this Twitter policy. But no, now, now it just gets to be reviewed by a human who can make a biased decision about whether or not it needs to stay on the platform or not. As is Twitter's right, right? I'm just saying that this, um, let's call this what it is. So, okay, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Um, When you look at the landscape we're in today with social media, how do you think we're doing on the free speech front? Like, are there areas where you are concerned and you think we're in trouble as a society, maybe like cancel culture, or um, what are some things that you are concerned about on the free speech front? You know, for a very long time, I was on the bandwagon of platforms like Facebook and Twitter having the full right to moderate their content as they desired. I mean, they are for-profit companies that that uh, built the platforms that they run and should have full bore authority to create whatever content policies they want. I, I have lately come around to this idea that these platforms have such an immense effect on our society that is not necessarily a good one. And the stranglehold that they have, it creates some potentially scary consequences for people's ability to talk to one another. 
And, you know, cancel culture is a worrisome trend as well. I, I don't know if it's just a generational thing. Um, I have definitely noticed that a lot of this resides in kind of the Gen Z cohort, people who grew up thinking that they shouldn't have to listen to ideas that are different than their own. And it's it's mildly horrifying that in another 15 years, people with that point of view are potentially going to be in charge of some very important institutions. Do you think the teens are going to start pushing back on this? I'm starting to read and hear that there might be some pushback against the cancel culture from teens. Do you think young people today will be the ones to push back against cancel culture? Are there any benefits to cancel culture? Look, I mean, I think that uh, I, I think it's correct to say that if you say something wild and ridiculous, you should expect to suffer at least some professional or social consequences for that. But the, the, culture of canceling someone online has crossed that line by like several orders of magnitude. And I know I'm, I'm beginning to think that, you know, one of the things that crypto and the idea of the metaverse can do for us is allowing people to interact with one another more anonymously. And people can live a, a life in real life and they can live an online life. And some of the most prolific um, Twitter handles in the crypto space these days are completely anonymous. And it's very interesting to think about how that's going to shape the way we engage in discourse online. Because in some ways, having to put your real name and face on something ensures that you, you know, are probably at least slightly more kind than you otherwise would be. But at the same time, giving people the opportunity to speak behind an avatar might also allow us to exchange ideas more robustly. Who knows? Interesting that you bring up anonymous accounts. I think I read in one of your documents on the Con Law website that the Federalist Papers were written by three of our founding fathers under anonymous yeah. names. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, so anonymous speech has been like a very important part of America from the very earliest founding. Some of the most important pamphlets that were circulated in the American Revolution and when the Constitution was written were originally anonymous. And you know, it's, it's an area, interestingly, where the courts have been a little bit split. You know, for example, you can't just run a political ad that advocates for or against an American political candidate without disclosing who you are and who paid for the ad. And uh, so we've clearly decided in some context that anonymous speech is not okay. But I do think it's an important part of the fabric of our kind of the heart of political speech. Mm -hmm. Are there any things that people can do to make sure they're supporting free speech? Like if you want to teach your children, for example, or you yourself want to become an advocate for free speech, do you have any ideas of things you can do? I think the most important thing you can do is tolerate speech you disagree with. Full stop. I like that. What about even embrace speech you disagree with? I mean, you don't <laughs> even have to embrace far? it. You just have to... <laughs> Defend to the death the person's right to say it, you know? Mm -hmm. You don't have to like it or embrace it or think it makes any sense at all, but you need to appreciate why it's important to have countervailing points of view. I love that. All right, I know you have to hop to your next meeting, so I think we can wrap. This is great. You are a fountain of information on this topic. I can't wait to keep reading through your con law website. Maybe we should have a discussion about whether or not one day that could be more publicly available to others because I think this is an incredible resource. <laughs> yeah, I have it pretty locked down. <laughs> yes. But in the meantime, thank you so much for sharing all of this. And yeah, I'm, I'm more to learn. I'm very excited to learn about these things. I think this is a topic that we, we would, as a society, do better to remember and embrace. Yeah. Well, um, I'm traveling next week, but just ping me when you have anything for me to, to listen to. 
You got it. All right. Good to see you. you. Bye. All right, folks, that's all for our talk today with Katie Biper. I hope that you found this informative and interesting and inspiring. I'll include some notes and key takeaways. Just click into the show notes and you will see a link. Thank you so much for listening and hope to see you soon.